For our scripture reading this evening, we turn first of all to Romans chapter 1. Romans 1, we're going to read the first 17 verses. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. For I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift, to the end ye may be established, that is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purpose to come unto you, but I was let hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And now we turn to Hebrews chapter 2. And we read the first four verses of Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, 
which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to his own will. In the light of those two passages in particular, we turn to the instruction of our Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 6, question and answer 19. The Catechism leading us to the Scriptures has just identified our Mediator as our Lord Jesus Christ, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. In question 19, we are brought this question. Whence knowest thou this? And the answer from the Holy Gospel, which God himself first revealed in paradise, and afterwards published by the patriarchs and prophets, and represented by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law, and lastly, has fulfilled it by his only begotten Son. Lord's A6, beloved, is the closest the Heidelberg Catechism gets to treating the doctrine of Holy Scripture. Whereas the Belgic Confession devotes a lengthy treatment to the doctrine of Holy Scripture, Articles 2 through 7, as the means by which God is made known to us, the Heidelberg Catechism's approach is different. Because of the personal approach of the Catechism and its purpose to draw from us our personal confession of faith in Christ Jesus, the Catechism has unfolded before us the wonder of our salvation now to have us face the question, how do you know this? How do you know that this Lord Jesus Christ has been made unto you wisdom and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. After all, that knowledge is critical. True faith says, I know that this Jesus alone is my salvation. We have seen the devastating effects of our sin, sin which separated us from God's favor and incurred his just wrath. We have seen, as taught by Scripture, that God's own word is that if we are to escape his judgment and be again received into favor, his justice must be satisfied. And we have seen that we are not able to do that. Not only could we never bear the full burden of God's wrath against our sins, let alone the sins of all mankind, 
but we are unable to walk in perfect obedience required for that satisfaction to be made. So we have learned that the one who alone could save us is the mediator provided by God himself. Indeed, God become flesh, our Lord Jesus Christ. And as I said, the confession of the true faith is that this Savior, this glorious Redeemer, is mine. Mine. You have to know that. Life eternal is to know God and Jesus Christ. Not merely to know about him, but to know him in the relationship of love, which is the expression of a true faith. That knowledge must be established. And so the question is, how do you know this? And the answer is from the Holy Gospel. So we consider this evening the gospel of our salvation. And as we consider that theme, we need to see, first of all, what it is, secondly, how it is made known, and finally, the response that it requires. What is the gospel? The gospel is the proclamation of our Lord Jesus Christ come to deliver us from the misery of our sin and death. It is in the most literal sense of the word, the good news. Good news. That good news is a message from God. That's an essential element of the gospel according to Romans 1 verse 1. It is a message from God to his people as they live in this world of sin and darkness and sorrow and misery and death, and as they live with the ever-present testimony that they themselves are subject to sin and death. In that darkness comes to them a message from God and therefore a divinely authoritative message And it's the joyful message from God concerning the gift of his own dear son. That's why the gospel is often spoken of as the gospel of Christ. It's the proclamation of the good news that Jesus Christ is the focus, the revelation of, of God's love and power to save. It's sometimes referred to as the gospel of the kingdom because the gospel works in such a way as to open the doors of the kingdom of heaven to all who believe, and therefore that which also reveals the wonder of that kingdom as established in and by Jesus Christ in stark contrast to the kingdom of darkness. 
It is, after all, the kingdom of God's dear Son. And being His kingdom, all those who are in Him by a true faith are citizens of that kingdom, being delivered from the bondage into which they had cast themselves. Paul even refers to the gospel in, in Romans 10 verse 15 as the gospel of peace. We have seen from our study of Scripture in recent weeks the tragedy wrought by the fall into sin. And we live observing that daily. We have noticed the despair that marks the world. Despair which we ourselves have known as belonging to the consequences of our own sin. And the depth of our sin and misery brings everything but peace. But the gospel, in its revelation of God's dear Son, is that by which God gives peace. The joy and freedom that comes in the fellowship of His love. And so we read in Romans 1, verses 3 and 4, that the gospel of God is the gospel concerning His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Notice at the heart of the gospel according to the inspired apostle, are two things. First, the incarnation, and secondly, the resurrection from the dead. Now you remember that the apostle Paul himself often spoke of the heart of that gospel being the preaching of the cross. We preach Christ crucified, he said. Well, remember, that's not only the purpose of the incarnation, but the resurrection is what seals that perfect work of Jesus Christ, our Savior. But in the incarnation comes him who is like us. He's like us in all things, sin accepted. And the sin accepted is because he was born of the Virgin Mary. He was born not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of the power of God, the Holy Spirit. And so he was revealed the Son of God. But that Son of God came according to the promise. He came the fulfillment of the gospel as it, as it had been proclaimed in the Old Testament of the seed of David according to the flesh. He took his flesh, his human nature, from the very heart of the line of the covenant that God had established with his people. That covenant 
that relationship of fellowship and love which God established already with Adam and Eve and which he had repeated with Abraham would come from the line which would run through David's house. Christ came to fulfill the promise of the realization of the covenant. And if you want to use a figure, that's one chamber of the heart of the gospel. The other chamber of that heart of the gospel is that of the wonder of the resurrection. Now the apostle will go on later in the epistle to the Romans to point out the significance of the resurrection when it comes to our salvation. You'll find that in the last verse of Romans 4. But the point that he makes here is that our Lord Jesus Christ who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, is truly the Son of God who alone could save us. Christ certainly revealed that throughout his earthly ministry when he repeatedly declared, I and my Father are one. Every wonder that he performed, as well as the authority by which he spoke, proclaimed that he was the Messiah sent from God to save his people. The one who had life in the very bosom of his father from eternity. But by the resurrection from the dead, God himself declared that Jesus Christ our Lord is his beloved Son in whom he is well pleased. Christ accomplished the work that God gave him to do. And so he satisfied God's justice in perfect obedience in the beauty of holiness. And thus, in the resurrection from the dead, he is declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness. And that expression indicates that he who was of the seed of David according to the flesh was himself perfectly holy. That's the powerful testimony given by God himself in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So the mediator whom we must seek for is the very one unveiled by God himself in the gospel. And that's the historical basis for for what we believe. In and by him do we hear declared by God himself good news. Salvation for a people living in hopeless despair, unable to extract themselves from the mire of sin and death. And then mind you, The good news of the gospel is not that God saves those who do enough for him. 
those who somehow are good enough. The gospel is the proclamation that the Savior, this Savior who comes from God himself and who is God, has come to deliver unfaithful, inconsistent, and poor sinners like us. Our salvation rests not on our ability to do what God requires, but rather on the pure and undefiled offering Jesus has provided for his people, those given him by the Father. That is the gospel given by God himself, fulfilled and realized by God himself. He conceived that gospel from eternity where Christ himself would be the firstborn. He sent his only begotten son into our darkness. He loaded upon him our guilt, giving him to the death of the cross where he poured upon him the vials of his infinite wrath that you and I deserve. And he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly glory there to rule over all things for our sakes. But that gospel by which God reveals Christ to us, does so in a particular way. And that's a notable part of what we read in Romans 1, and particularly in verses 16 and 17. That gospel, as we read in Romans 1, verse 16, is the power of God unto salvation. It is therefore not merely a statement of facts. It's not merely the unveiling of the rich doctrine of the Christian faith with the hope that the people might understand and believe them. A power is that which accomplishes something. It affects something. And this power is the power of God, mind you. The gospel of God, therefore, is that which accomplishes something, has an effect. And what is its effect? What does it bring about? The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It affects salvation. Which is to say, God brings salvation to our consciousness by, or by means of, the gospel. No wonder Paul was not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. He was speaking of the calling that God had given him to preach that gospel. And there are many times when the sower goes forth to sow that precious seed and can only weep 
to see his toil seem to come to no positive effect. That was the apostle's own experience. And he wrote about it in the first part of Romans 9. Reminded by the Spirit that the rejection of the gospel was not as though the word of God had taken none effect. For they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. That power of God unto salvation is seen by its divine effects in everyone who believes. You can't believe without God working in you that faith by the power of the gospel. That power of God is the power unto salvation. And that salvation is deliverance from the bondage of sin and death and all the misery that we experience as the consequence of our offenses against the perfectly holy God. It's the power to save from this fallen world into which we are born and in which we live It's the power to save from the toil and suffering that we experience in this earthly sojourn and from the corruption of sin against which we have to battle daily. It's the power to save us, even from the last enemy, which is death. The power to give us life everlasting. Think about this. Think how amazing this is. The gospel not only informs us about Jesus Christ, that gospel has the power to unite you to Christ by faith so that your sins are blotted out The bondage to sin is broken. The bands of death are cut. The darkness is driven away. And you are transformed, changed, indeed, made a new creature in Christ. That's the power of the gospel. The apostle will go on in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 to point out that the gospel is that power as the Holy Spirit applies it to our hearts. The natural man doesn't receive those blessings merely by hearing the gospel. But God has revealed them to us by His Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2 verses 10 and following. But the emphasis in the passage that we read, Romans 1 verse 16, is that the gospel is such a power that it transforms us spiritually. And note, not it might be. What confidence 
could Paul have had if the gospel only might be the power of God unto salvation? Not it might be if you accept it, if you believe. The gospel is the living power to draw that activity of faith. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, said Jesus in John 10, verse 27. That's what is meant by the gospel being the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Now, here you realize there's a distinction between the holy gospel, which we are considering this evening, and holy scripture. Yes, God in his tender mercy gave his people the revelation of that gospel to be recorded and preserved in Holy Scripture. We have the written record of the gospel in the Scriptures. But the Bible itself can't transform you. Nor can the preaching of any man change you in that way. Our preaching must be faithful to the Scriptures, the faithful exposition of the infallible revelation of the Gospel. But my words could never change you any more than the Apostles' words could change his kinsmen according to the flesh. The power of the gospel is far more than the power of persuasion. A man might persuade you, but that persuasion will never change you from a state of unrighteousness to a state of righteousness. Persuasion might convince you to change your behavior and to dump what you have come to realize are some very bad habits. But persuasion will not change your spiritual condition from corruption to holiness. It will not transform you from death to life. But when God addresses you, by His Spirit, through the Gospel, He addresses you with the power to save. And please understand that this power of the Gospel, as the inspired Apostle proclaims it, and which our Catechism says is that by which we know Jesus Christ as our wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, does not allow the idea of the gospel as an offer left up to those who hear it to either accept or reject it. An offer in that sense of the word is powerless. When our canons of Dort use the term offer, 
they are using the old Latin term which referred to the setting forth or proclamation of the gospel. The usage of that term then was different from the usage of that term today. The gospel is the power of God. Such a power it is that it accomplishes the purpose whereunto God sends it, either as that power unto salvation to everyone who believes, or that power by which the Holy Spirit hardens the hearts of those who are unbelieving and disobedient. But we are told more specifically in verse 17 of Romans 1, that therein, that is in that gospel of Christ, is revealed the righteousness of God. In this way, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. We have considered in the past several weeks the perfect righteousness of God. God is righteous in himself and therefore righteous in everything he does. But we have also seen that his righteousness requires that he punishes all those who defy his righteousness and rebel in sin against him. And so we have seen that if we are to be saved, God himself must provide a righteousness for us and in our place. He must provide a mediator, one to whom our unrighteousness could be imputed and who in turn would impute his righteousness to us. And it is this idea that's expressed in verse 17. What was unattainable by us is provided by God and revealed by him in the gospel. The righteousness which God alone prepared, which Christ has accomplished and imputed to you, is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith, the reference being to the prophecy of Habakkuk 2, verse 4. So from the bond of faith which God has established, he calls by his gospel to the activity of faith, giving us to know, not about merely, but giving us to know our Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation that is ours in him. That holy gospel has been made to the church, made known to the church throughout history. The catechism calls attention to how this gospel has been made known, pointing first to the unfolding of that gospel through the entire Old Testament age. God himself first revealed it in paradise. What devastation Adam and Eve brought upon themselves by the fall into sin. 
What ruin to their own consciences. What devastation to their marriage. They who had that perfect relationship were suddenly confronted with personal sins and sinfulness as well as the sinfulness of each other. They lived with the effects of sin in their family life. Seeing one of their own sons murder another of their sons. Seeing unbelief and and ungodliness come to expression in Cain. But the most devastating of all the effects of the fall was on their relationship with their Creator. Adam, who had walked with God as a friend with his Creator, suddenly deprived himself of the sense of God's favor. And God in mercy came to them immediately after the fall with the gospel. That's Genesis 3, verse 15, the promise of God's Messiah. The Savior who would come as the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. And while Adam must bear the consequences of his fall, as would the whole human race, God continued to unfold that gospel to him, even showing him that the payment for sin, for his sin, would come through the shedding of the blood of him whom God alone would provide for a sacrifice. That gospel was the power of God unto salvation for Adam and Eve and their elect children who would follow them. And God continued throughout the Old Testament to have his gospel proclaimed, increasingly shining the light of his glory, the glory of his purpose in the salvation of his people through the coming mediator. He would provide that Savior from the line of Judah, of the seed of Abraham. And in that Messiah would all the nations of the earth be blessed. Not only did God see to it that his gospel was proclaimed from generation to generation, but he had it published by the patriarchs and prophets, providing his people with the written record of his gospel, the Holy Scripture. It isn't my purpose in preaching from this Lord's Day this time through to call attention to that, but what a wonder work of God in publishing his gospel by holy inspiration. It is indeed a wonder of grace 
as we read in 2 Peter 1, verse 21, not the work of men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. That's why the Scriptures are authoritative. Yes, God also represented that gospel by the sacrifices and ceremonies of the law. In the words of Galatians 3, all those sacrifices and ceremonies that belonged to the Old Testament law was the schoolmaster to lead God's people to Christ. Again, the gospel reveals Christ, the only Savior, the wonderful Savior. And then, finally, that holy gospel was fulfilled by God's only begotten Son. In the coming of Jesus Christ, in John chapter 10, is recorded Jesus' controversy with the Jews who rejected him as the Son of God and therefore as their mediator. And in his spirited defense, Jesus made the powerful statement concerning the scriptures, which which statement testified of his divine sonship, the scripture cannot be broken. The scripture cannot be broken. The entire scripture reveals Christ. Christ come to save his people from their sin. It's the absolute authority before which all must bow. The scriptures are the word of God and therefore proclaims his promises which are yea and amen in Christ Jesus. And when Jesus says the scriptures cannot be broken, He also means that all who rely upon that word and who lay hold of him by faith shall never be forsaken. That word broken, after all, means to be brought to nothing, to be rendered without value. Well, the scripture cannot be broken. For some 6,000 years, men have been trying to cast it off, to break it to pieces, but it stands as the Word of God. And in it is revealed the gospel of Him who came to break the hardest hearts, to soften the most belligerent people, to work in us, the faith in Jesus, who alone is our Savior, and in whom alone is our only comfort in life and death. The response that this gospel demands is pointedly set before us in Hebrews chapter 2. Let's hear once again the first four verses of Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. 
For if this, if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape? If we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. Some reject this word. Some have no use for this gospel. To some, the gospel proclamation runs off them like water off a duck's back. Some despise it. After all, it reminds them of their sin and bondage to death. It exposes our inability to do anything to affect deliverance from the misery and hopelessness of our lives. It humbles us, declaring that there is only one who can save us. The proud heart wants nothing to do with such a gospel. And sometimes that's the case even in the church. After all, they were church people to whom the writer to the Hebrews wrote the exhortation that begins Hebrews 2. And there are times we have to confess when each of us neglects the things we have heard. We grow cold. Our minds are not sharp spiritually. We fail to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And at times, we can hear the gospel. And we walk out those doors and out of church unmoved. That's why we must be exhorted to give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard. The reference being to the gospel. The proclamation of so great salvation, to use the words of verse 3. What a sin it is to neglect so great salvation. To neglect so great salvation is to continue in bondage to sin. It's to hear the call of the gospel, repent and believe, and to shrug it off. There's no godly sorrow of repentance. There's no heartfelt longing to walk with God. And that's because there's been no laying hold of Christ by a true faith. There might be a claim, Jesus has forgiven me. 
but that's disassociated from the truth that the gospel of forgiveness is also a gospel of transformation that makes us new creatures in Christ. As we saw in Romans 1 verse 17, the just shall live by faith. We know our Lord Jesus Christ by the Holy Gospel. By faith, we know Him who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. You do, don't you? then by that faith, you not only have righteousness and life everlasting, but by that faith you live to the glory of Him who alone has saved you. Amen. Gracious Father, we thank Thee for the gospel of our salvation. And we pray that as we have heard it even tonight and as we hear it from Lord's Day to Lord's Day, write that word upon our hearts that we know Thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom Thou hast sent that we know Thee as our faithful Father, for Jesus' sake, in whose name we pray. Amen.